Welcome back to Tiny Bites. This week, I'm talking with fellow Canadian writer Jennifer Taylor Chan. Jen is the mastermind behind the epically awesome, I promise I am not overhyping it, weekly newsletter called Deliberate Discourse. Deliberate Discourse is a weekly conversation on minimalist living for collective sustainable prosperity and exists at the intersection of sustainability, self-improvement, and progressive economics. Jen's work always tackles the complicated issues facing us as a society today. Her work is so thorough and well-researched, and they always leave me wanting to learn more about an issue. Right after we recorded this episode, Jen released an article on deliberate discourse called Is a Minimalist Economy Possible? And that article informed a lot of what we spoke about for this episode. I love Jen's work because it takes time to consume. I have to be intentional about when I read her work, making sure that I give myself time to fully absorb her research. Her writing brings together a variety of complex topics, but always does so in a way that is accessible to people, and she always leaves me wanting to learn more. Jen's work focuses on topics that a lot of people, myself included, in the minimalist community have shied away from talking about. Topics that are bigger and meatier and address politics and climate change and the economy. She comes to minimalism from a place of understanding that we cannot continue to consume at a rate that we currently are and expect the earth to be here for us. This is the motivation that should be behind every person's decision to consume less and to consume more intentionally. It certainly is part of my reasoning, but until now, it's not something that I've spoke at length about. We spoke for over two hours in total, an hour of which we recorded for this episode. She's a super cool person, and I'm so glad that she agreed to sit down with me. In this episode of Tiny Bites, we're talking everything from tips to be more efficient at work by working smarter, not harder, to food waste in South Korea, to breaking up with Facebook. I hope you enjoy listening to it as much as I enjoyed recording it. So thank you so much, Jen, for talking to me today. Thank you for having me. So your online uh, presence has sort of evolved and changed a couple of times over the last couple of years. So for everyone out there who might not be familiar with your online stuff, do you want to give like a bit of a background into how it all started and where you're at today? Sure. So I initially started out uh, with a personal finance blog. Initially, it was called jenonmoney.com, but then I just changed it to my name. And I was essentially blogging about paying off my student loans that I accumulated while I was in law school. I graduated law school with about over $50,000 in debt. And then I managed to pay it off in about two and a half years. And so after I paid it off, I started to uh, kind of go away from specifically talk about personal finance. And I kind of grew into minimalism and what it meant to sort of evaluate our consumer purchases and so forth. And now I have a weekly newsletter called Deliberate Discourse, where I sort of talk about this concept that I sort of created on my own called progressive minimalism, which is about focusing on the external benefits of minimalism. So we kind of already know all the amazing internal benefits of minimalism from uh, the minim- minimalists who kind of started this whole thing with Leo Babauta and Zen Habits and Courtney Carver and Joshua Becker and, and you from Tiny Ambitions. And now I wanted to sort of mention about the external benefits. So the social, economic and environmental benefits of living with less and sort of how that can help redistribute wealth in our economy, as well as live within our planetary boundaries. So I kind of have evolved away from personal finance while still talking about the importance of, of wealth. But uh, so, yeah, so that's sort of the general transition that I've I've made online. And you already brought it up. I was going to ask you about it. But so progressive minimalism, I think, is a super interesting term. And I'm 
excited that you sort of, you know, you coined it, you came up with it. Cause I think it does sort of fill uh, a niche that didn't have anything, you know, cause minimalism, I think comes across as very, you know, personal, like it's all about, you know, your personal benefits, your own life, what you do on a day-to-day basis. But I think what I love about progressive minimalism is that it sort of takes it out of your own life and makes it a lot broader to incorporate the, you know, the, the real reasons why we should really be interested in minimalism in, in the first place. Yeah. And to be honest, that's one of the great things about writing online is that you can kind of make stuff up and coin it. <laughs> but, <laughs> but for me, it was kind of like, you know, it seemed that a lot of the very big minimalist bloggers out there were hesitant to talk about politics or economics. And I totally understand that because I think just in the beginning, when you try to get people on board with your idea, you have to make it as inclusive as possible, no matter where people are coming from. But now I think that the growing dialogue about minimalism is um, just generally more well accepted, that we can start talking about uh, more specific things that may be uh, perhaps a bit more political. And for me, um, that is about progressive minimalism. So I think inherent in that is the idea that we don't need to um, use GDP as a defining uh, measurement in terms of what it means to have a good life. And there's been a growing body of research that I've been sort of been going through over the past couple months, and it's super complicated. And I'm by no means an expert in it, but I find it absolutely fascinating. So this idea that perhaps maybe uh, we shouldn't be just pursuing endless growth, especially with a finite amount of natural resources, and that it's kind of irrational to expect that we can grow unlimited, or without limits, sorry. And, um, and so there's been actually a, a growing body of economists, environmentalists, and so forth, uh, specifically from Europe, who are actually producing really well written academic studies that are trying to solve this issue. Um, it's also called uh, Buddhist economics, which I think is pretty interesting. And it sort of has been around since I think around the 1970s, but it's, it's growing in popularity now. One of the things that I love about your work is that it reminds me a lot of my undergraduate degree. I have a degree in international development studies. And so a lot of what we talk about is, you know, you know, political economy, um, capitalism. I literally took a course in my fourth year called capitalism, (laughs) (laughs) which is very interesting. Um, And, you know, environmental sustainability. And so what I love about your work is it sort of like pulls all of those things together. And so, I mean there's been a lot of different disciplines that talk about these things sort of separately, like political economy is, you know, different from, you know, the body of environmental work is different from, you know, the work on, you know, the hard economy and capitalism and, you know, neoliberalism, um, which I never thought I'd say in a podcast of mine. (laughs) (laughs) But I think it's, as you say, I think it's time now to really talk about bringing those pieces together because they can't really, we can't solve the problem by keeping everyone separate anymore. Exactly. And I think that, you know, I was reading something, I think about a month ago, um, on Twitter, (laughs) where all good ideas come from, (laughs) where someone was saying how, you know, we shouldn't, we shouldn't mix the idea of equality and climate change as the same sort of interlocking issue, and we should just deal with each of them separately. And I just, I just don't think that is really possible, because everything is connected. I mean, we grow our economy through our use of um, how much we produce and how much we consume. 
And the revenue generated from that um, is distributed across society. And so there is really a fundamental intertwining of the two. And so I think we need to talk about it. And to your point, you know, I don't see this whole issue of climate change and the environment as a left-right issue. I think it's something that we just need to think about in terms of, you know, diehard capitalists say that it is the best economic system in the world. And I think that at a moment in time in the 20th century, for sure, I, I don't think that we could disagree with that. I mean, there are so many people in the mid 20th century and in the early 20th century who, you know, began to make enough money to actually buy stuff that they wanted and not just needed. And, you know, they were able to just improve their quality of life. They're able to go to the cinema, they're able to buy a car, they're able to buy a TV. And I, and I think that's great. It was, you know, there was a time of prosperity, but I think now in 2019, we have to really think about if this is still working for us, or it maybe we need to let go of that and just think of a new economic system that takes into account our natural resources, because we're just not in the same place as we once were. And so I think it's more of a you know, figuring out if it still works for us, or maybe we need to think of something else. So when you're, you know, writing about these kinds of, I mean, frankly, academic and high level kind of topics to most people, it certainly would be, you know, out of the realm of what they would normally encounter. How do you sort of, in your own life, reinterpret what you write about at that high level? How does that sort of come into play in your real life? Like, how do you incorporate the things that you write about into your day-to-day life to Uh, make that difference? Yeah, that's such a good question. And it's something that I struggle with, too, because I am learning all these things. And I kind of want to write about what I'm learning in a inclusive way that's approachable and won't make people fall asleep. (laughs) And so I, I try to incorporate some of what I do just to shed light into that. But I'm very careful not to make sure that I'm not preaching anything to anyone. So Um, For example, in one of my articles, I talk about how I'm trying to live more towards a zero waste lifestyle. I don't think that I'll ever get to a zero waste life, zero waste lifestyle, but I can definitely minimize my waste. So I share stuff that I do that seems second nature to me now, but was at once quite difficult. So for example, I, you know, bring a coffee tumbler every time I go to Starbucks or buy coffee. I, uh, I bring my lunch to work almost every day. And, um, you know, what was initially kind of horrifying to me, but I now appreciate is that my partner uh, brings our reusable containers to restaurants if there's leftovers. That's amazing. (laughs) I initially was very embarrassed by it, but I have grown, (laughs) I have grown used to it now. And now when we ever eat with or family or friends, they say, oh, you're so good or something like that. But, you know, so I just share my, my own ways to do it. I, I definitely eat less uh, red meat and my partner's vegan, but I'm not completely vegan. So I just try to do little things like that. But I also engage in conversation. And I think just even writing about it and spreading these ideas around is, is quite useful. And I think ideas do spread. And so that's kind of what I'm doing on an individual level. And I think all of those, you know, little things people, I mean, it's hard sometimes for people to think that the 
things that they do day to day, like those little things really make any kind of a difference. But I think that they really do, especially if the, you know, you're building on them and you're adding and eventually you get to a place where you're doing all of these things that, you know, is really reducing your waste and reducing your consumption, reducing the load on the planet. And so I never want to, you know, minimize anyone who's like, oh, I just, I only bring, you know, my lunch to work once a week or I only um, compost when I remember. It's like, no, that's awesome. Like you're doing, you're doing the work, even if you're only doing it, you know, you know, ad hoc and not always doing it all the time, like every little bit helps. And I think that sometimes those things get overshadowed by like the massive things like, oh, I own an electric car, which I don't, but you know, I own an electric car or I have solar panels on my roof. I'm like, those are great things too, but it is, it doesn't overshadow the little, the littler things that can add up to a lot. Yeah. It's an interesting debate too, because, um, have you heard of this guy named David Wallace Wells? Yes. Okay. So he was so he wrote the book the uninhabitable earth and he was saying that like individual choices don't really matter so much as for example um you know creating lots of uh policies governmental policies for example like a carbon tax and so forth and i think that there's some merit into it but i think that what he's missing is that ideas spread on an individual level like even when you talk about marketing or advertising a lot of products or lifestyles that gain traction are because they see someone that we know do them and are curious about them and start sort of, you know, incorporating it into their own lives. And so, I mean, why do you think that, you know, we have such a problem with purchasing material goods when we look on Instagram or social media? It's because we see what other people are doing and we try to replicate them. So I think if we do that, but for good reasons, I think that that is pretty useful and effective. So I think no matter what, even just by bringing, you know, your own coffee tumbler to uh, whatever coffee shop that you go to, and you know, your friend or coworker just happens to come along with you, you know, perhaps that will start something with them as well. So there's something about just sort of like leading first and just trying to do the best that you can. And then, you know, that's all really anyone could ask for within your means. I mean, I'm still not perfect, but I try not to beat myself up over it. Absolutely. I think that's, you know, the whole minimalist guilt or zero waste guilt. It doesn't actually help you do any better. <laughs> I think there's also a fatigue with that as well. You know, I mean, people can get so extreme and feel like they're still not doing enough. And I, I that that's the, that's the thing with minimalism too. And so you kind of just have to give yourself allowances for it because it shouldn't necessarily always mean a sacrifice. Absolutely. So when you first started down you know the minimalist path can you give us a little background on sort of how that came around like why that like what why did minimalism sort of come into your life (laughs) um you know I think a lot of people who identify as minimalists started out because they had a problem with their money and I definitely was no different and so when I actually became debt-free I didn't really change my habit, my spending habits again. So instead of being, I used to be, you know, I used to track all my spending. I used to be really frugal. And then as soon as I was debt free, I sort of gave myself an allowance to just spend as much as I wanted, as long as I didn't go back into debt, because I felt like the worst was over and I deserved a lot of these things. And so um, honestly, my partner was a really big um, influence into my journey towards minimalism, because she she actually watched the minimalist documentary and I had never heard of them before and so I I watched it with her uh quite skeptically and I was actually very uninterested in it but it was actually really great and then I stumbled upon their blog and you know 
for me, it was a good introduction into minimalism because they seemed to make it more approachable than I think had I initially read Zen Habits or or Courtney Carver or anything like that. And so that's kind of how I, I first came to hear about minimalism. And then I actually didn't read too much about it. I kind of just um, did what was right for me. I wasn't really huge into shopping for clothes. I've never been, but I definitely spent a lot of money on other things. And, um, and so it was really just paring down and having a lot of discussions with my partner because my partner is very, very good about spending and she really embraces living more minimalist, um, a more minimalist lifestyle. So, you know, even now, um, every week we go through room by room and try to purge things and donate things and, um, and so forth. But I would say that my partner really first introduced this to me. So I'm quite thankful for her. No, that's awesome. I think a lot of people, um, they always ask, oh, how do I get my partner on board with minimalism? And how can I make them, you know, see the light? And I think it's, it's hard. It's If your partner doesn't want to do it, you're not going to convince them by, you know, showing them, you know, or, or by making them get rid of all their stuff. It's not going to happen. So I'm glad that you had, you know, a nice gentle introduction. <laughs> Yeah, and she's <laughs> she does more around the house than I do, and I'm I'm very open <laughs> about that. And so, she even when she started getting into reducing like the amount of waste that she used. So, for example, she would start making us soap, and she she just made like um deo uh she just made deodorant for us to to try. And like I'm so lazy, I would never do that. But then when she does it already for me I definitely see the merits of it and I definitely get on board a bit more so I think having someone sort of do the heavy lifting for you at first is is definitely a good a good way to do that so I'm very I know that I'm very lucky and I'm very spoiled with that (laughs) so you know when your partner introduced you to minimalism obviously that was you know a couple of years ago now sort of has minimalism made a difference? Because I think there's people who maybe say, oh, does it really matter to, you know, live with less? Does it really make any difference in your life and how you do things? So that's my question to you. Does it? <laughs> I definitely think it does. I mean, we just we just are so much more thoughtful just about how we spend our time. And that's just that's just the big thing. So we have a lot more conversations about the time that we do spend together and how that should be allocated. And we have a lot more honest conversations about money and how we should spend our money. And I think those are just the key things to minimalism. But I mean, it also sparked more of a discussion about how we want to be more environmentally friendly and what we can do. So what led into that, I think, is our sort of passion for rescue dogs and adopting rescue dogs. So I'm on, we're on our our second rescue dog, our, our first dog, um, sadly passed away a couple months ago. And um, it just kind of showed us just, you know, if we're not spending our money on things that don't really matter, and that we're just, you know, simply buying in order to compare ourselves to others, think how much money that is, and think how much money we could spend on taking care of you know, a dog who had to escape Houston, Texas after Hurricane Harvey. And that's exactly what we did. We just allocated our money differently to things that we really cared about. And, you know, not everyone will want to be a dog owner. But I mean, for us, it's just really put our money more where where it matters and where I think that we can we can really make a difference. 
in some small way. No, I love that. I think it, I mean, it doesn't necessarily need to be, you know, a rescue dog. Maybe it's you really love food and you want to support your local farmers and, you know, reduce food waste. Then you, you know, maybe you sign up for a CSA in your community, or maybe you start volunteering for an environmental organization. I think, I think you've sort of phrased it perfectly. And when you said that, you know, it just makes you more intentional with how you want to spend your time and how you want to spend your money. Um, because once you sort of see where your money's going and, you know, how you're consuming things and how you're living your life and what impact that has on your, you know, your own personal health, but also on the the health of your environment, it becomes, it's one of those things you can't stop seeing. Once you see the, the areas in your life that you want to improve, you don't, you don't stop seeing them and it just becomes, it sort of feeds itself, which is kind of cool. Yeah, absolutely. And I think also, for me, I mean, Jamie, uh, my partner is a nurse, and she's always wanted to be a nurse, and she's able to be a nurse. But for me, you know, uh, as someone who is a lawyer, a practicing lawyer, you know, it's very easy to be seduced into going into private practice and to become a corporate lawyer and make, you know, a lot of money, but basically having a job that is more or less kind of unfulfilling and meaningless to probably 99% of the society. But so, I mean, once I figured out my enough, quote unquote, through minimalism, I was able to, you know, choose a public career. So I'm a lawyer at a legal aid clinic. Um, The salary is more than enough for me. Um, I'm able to, you know, essentially work nine to five. I can write on the side. Um, I know that I'm doing work that is servicing people in need. And, you know, I don't think that I would be able to do that if I just still was on the hedonic treadmill. So, you know, I think when you sort of pare down what you really need in life, it just opens up so much more opportunities to do whatever you want. There's a certain kind of freedom in that. And I think that that's really important. Absolutely. And I'm glad you brought up your career because I think a lot of people, <laughs> yeah, well, because you, I mean, you do work one of those jobs where people are like, oh, that must be so stressful. And that's, you know, that's an all the time job. And how do you do it? Like, how do you find that work-life balance? And I think that, you know, minimalism is often toted as one of the ways to do that. But for people who, um, don't have those high stress jobs. Like, let's be honest, most of us are not, you know, saving babies and saving the planet. Like, that's just not, we're just not. And that's fine. That's totally fine. (laughs) So I always just wonder, like in, in a, you know, in a traditionally high stress job, even if you're not working at, you know, a big corporate firm, being a lawyer is, you know, very taxing and a lot of hard work. And so I, I'm wondering how minimalism sort of supports you in the work that you do. Honestly, this is one of my most, uh, I think it's such an interesting concept. And this is something that I explore a lot in my newsletter. Um, I think minimalism should be applied more to the way that we work. For example, in law, there's just so many things that are just, that don't really move the needle um, in terms of the services that you provide for your, for your clients. So answering emails and responding to phone calls, those things are important, but what's really important is making sure you draft really good legal submissions, that you are a good oral advocate when you are, you know, in a court or in a tribunal or um, administrative board, you know, that you're negotiating effectively when you're in a mediation. Those are things that are going to move the needle the most. And so 
I think really when I apply minimalism into how I work, I just try to reduce the amount of tasks that don't really move the needle that much. And then I try to um, dedicate as much time as possible on the things that are really going to matter. And so for me, that's just being really well organized at work, uh, working intensely for um, a few hours each day, and then just sort of, you know, leave, you know, batching my tasks. There's a variety of things that I think that minimalism can really be useful for when we incorporate it um, into our work days. And so as a result, I mean, I I honestly work nine to five most days. If I have a hearing, then I'll be working more. But um, usually it's only about, you know, four hours on Saturday, four hours on Sunday. Um, you know, it's just, just, again, it's just paring down what is unessential and leaving as much time and energy and cognitive capacity for what is essential. And so I actually think lawyers can really benefit from thinking about things in that way as well. I mean, Greg McEwen calls it essentialism, and I, I think it's the same thing. Absolutely. I think, you know, especially in those high-pressure jobs, there's, you know, that pressure to always do more and be more and be always available. But is that actually good for your clients? Is that good for you? Like, where is where does that where's that line really? So I think I think that you're right. The more that we can focus on what is actually going to make a difference and sort of come up with, you know, tools and tricks in our own day-to-day job lives that will help us to simplify is great. And I think though I mean I don't know necessarily that you could start minimalism at work if you don't do it in your own life personally already. But I think that if you are doing those things in terms of simplifying in your own life, they can spill over certainly into your work life and sort of have that impact. Yeah, absolutely. And I think also with, I mean, especially in the legal industry, and that's kind of all I have to go on because that's what I'm in. But I mean, things like the billable hour are just so antagonistic to this idea that you need to, the longer you spend on something, the better work that you produce. And the research behind it just doesn't, just doesn't prove that. Um, you know, you can produce better results by working less, but in a more focused manner. And I just think that there's a lot to gain, a lot to gain from that approach. Totally. Uh, a friend of ours is a lawyer um, and he works, you know, for a traditional firm um, and he has a quota of billable hours that he has to work every single year. And when I heard that, it kind of blew my mind. Like, what? but what if you just are done work <laughs> like yeah. like what do you if you do your job really well like I don't it's hard for me to wrap my mind around the idea that a certain number of hours is like I, an ideal benefit or an ideal outcome it makes it makes no sense also it's like if you have to do research for example for like a client like you have every incentive to stretch out that time. So, I mean, you could bill for two hours when really, if you just focus, it could probably take you half an hour. Like, what is the point in that? It's like, I like just do, do your work for half an hour and then, you know, do something else so that you can leave at 5 p.m. It, it makes absolutely no sense. And I, I just, I fight back so much in this idea that time is money because it's like, time is not money. Time is a non-renewable resource. Money is a renewable resource. Also, everyone's time if you want to quantify it, it's different because what if someone lives till they're 80? What if someone lives till they're 60? Then obviously your time is more important if you're going to die earlier. So it's just, I don't understand how we quantify time and I don't see, you know, I just don't see that approach as well at all. I think, I think clients also just kind of get ripped off in that way. So, I mean, if I ever opened up my own practice, I would, I would do a block 
fee, which some lawyers do, which I, I completely support rather than with the billable hour. Billable hour is the worst. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think it's awesome that you're, you know, you've made that commitment to sort of really to do, to do your work differently. And I think that that's, you know, very commendable because I don't think that a lot of people even know that maybe they just don't even see that as an option for themselves. Maybe they just think that they have to work a certain way in their field in order to, you know, do it properly or be fulfilled or, you know, gain recognition. Um, and so I think, I think you deserve, you know, pat on the back for, for going about it, the, for going about it the way that you have. I probably pissed off a lot of lawyers, but whatever. Well, let's hope that I don't have, a, you know, a large lawyer listening base. <laughs> so when you're when you're talking about, you know, minimalism and work, do you have, you know, specific strategies of things that you do that you could share as like, you know, tips for people on how to be more productive in their day when they're at work? Yes, absolutely. So um, what I do is that on Monday morning, every week, I plan for the week in advance. So I don't really look at things to do on a daily basis. I look at things to do on a weekly basis, because if some unexpected event happens, um, and I don't get around to doing everything on my to do list for that day, I don't want to feel guilty or, or down on myself. Motivation is super important. So um, what I do is that I write down on a notepad, all the tasks that I, I had to do that week. And I put a number beside each task um, and each number uh, indicates how much time I think it'll take. So if I'm drafting legal submissions, for example, or doing something that's really cognitively intensive, I put a one beside it in a little circle, which means that it's going to take more than an hour for tasks that take uh, anywhere between half an hour to an hour is uh, it's uh, I put a number two beside it. And then for any light tasks like responding to emails or calling people um, that would take 30 minutes or less, I put it at number three. So then I sort of spread out my number one designated tasks throughout the week. Um, and I usually dedicate a whole half day to, to one of those tasks. And then I usually batch my second and third tasks. So I usually do a bunch of emails at once. And so um, you know, I'll spend an afternoon doing uh, a series of tasks that are twos and threes and so forth. And so I kind of spread them out. So that's kind of how I organize my entire week. And that's way I know when I'm going to work on something and that it'll get done. Um, I also stop scheduling meetings on Mondays and Fridays. So Mondays, I like to get in there and sort of organize everything so that I have clarity for the rest of the week. And I can respond to any sort of um, buyers that you know need to be put out from the weekend and on Fridays I also like to sort of wrap up anything that I still need to get done on Fridays because I find that scheduling meetings if you if you're someone who, who has to go to a lot of meetings it totally like ruins your day because if you have a meeting at like 10 a.m you can't really do much if you get into work at like 8 30 or 9 and then who knows how long the meeting is going to to take and then you go for lunch and then you're like the rest of your day you're kind of like eh so, I mean, I just find that meetings just totally disrupt any sort of quiet time that you can that can you really think. So I generally just try to say Tuesdays to Thursdays. But if a client can only meet me on Mondays and Fridays, then I will make that exception. But generally, I only schedule them Tuesdays to Thursdays. Um, another thing is that I try to just schedule when I check social media during work. I mean, everyone does it. But I mean, I only have Twitter. But uh, I really only try to do it um, during lunch. And when I have a break in between when I'm working, but you know, I don't try to multitask and I try to single task as much as possible. And other than that, I, I still try to rely on pen and paper as much as possible, even though we're in 2019, but 
you know, when you write things down on uh, on a notepad and you write things out, you just memorize things better and you have less distractions. If you depend less on your computer, then you, you know, you won't feel inclined to open up your web, web browser and, and read the news or anything like that while you're at work. So those are kind of the tips and tricks that I that I use in my in my life. I love all of those, especially the the pen to paper, because that's the way that I am. I have a massive notebook at work and I have to write everything down in meetings. I'm the one furiously taking notes because if I don't write it down, I won't remember. Um, and it's it's because I it's, 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 it's such a weird thing though because I work in marketing which is and social media which is you know online on my phone constantly so it's it's a weird dichotomy to be like I'm the one who needs to write it down on paper and then I'll put it into my computer later but so I love that but so you mentioned uh Twitter which reminded me of something I wanted to ask you so you broke up with Mark Zuckerberg this year and I'm sure he was very heartbroken about it um yeah so you and I are similar in in that sense. So, cause I had a Facebook page for uh, tiny ambitions and I closed it because it's just too much freaking work and I didn't want to do it anymore. Um, so I shut it down. Uh, I still have Instagram, but you went th- even further and got rid of Instagram as well. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that and what sort of what brought that about for you? Yeah. So I think I deleted Facebook last early last year so it's been I think more than a year since I've had Facebook I kind of forget that people still have Facebook to be honest (laughs) it's been so long um I really didn't care too much about deleting Facebook because everyone was on Instagram so the hardest thing I think for me was Instagram and WhatsApp um Instagram was it was just I just noticed that it was actually really harmful to the quality of time that I was spending with my partner so um you know, my partner and I would be, you know, cause she's on, um, she's on a, uh, a rotation. Uh, so she's four days on four days off. Then she, uh, and then it repeats its cycle because she's a nurse. And so the time that we do have together is quite limited. And so we were just getting into a cycle. We were just scrolling while we were, you know, eating dinner together. It was really, really awful. And so we kind of just realized that it just was doing more harm than good. So um, we decided to take a break just temporarily. And then eventually we decided that we were just going to delete everything. Um, I also just, you know, for whatever reason, I just don't agree with the, the revenue model of how, um, Zuckerberg sort of makes his money. And I think that it's just, it's just too smart for me. Like it just, I'm not, I'm not good at filtering out the noise and not looking at other people and what they have. I'm I'm very susceptible to that and I already know that and so I just decided to to quit at cold turkey and it's honestly been really great but I'm still on Twitter and um for better for worse and uh I I don't feel quite as as uh, opposed to that yeah I can definitely relate to the scrolling while you're with your partner and it it's I'm starting to have some thoughts about it that (laughs) my partner and I might need to have conversation about it because it's one of those things it's like this is not like, I'm not dating you to sit here on the couch on my phone. <laughs> That's not what our relationship is about. <laughs> it is hard, though, because it was so interesting. So I I don't I have my Instagram profile up and there, I deleted all the photos except for one, which said in the caption or the subtitle was basically like, I'm going to delete Instagram. So contact me somewhere else. I went back on recently just to do an Instagram story to let people know that Jamie and I got engaged. And it was insane. Like 84 people or like 100 people DM'd me saying congratulations. But like, I don't, I don't talk to like 90% of them. 
in real life. Like these were loose friends that I had from university or from law school or friends of friends who, you know, I went to the bar with a few times, but you know, it's, it's just jarring because in real life, I don't hang out with nearly any of them, but at the same time, Instagram fools you into thinking that all of them really care. And so like, it's just, it was just such an interesting experiment to just do that for like last month for, and just to see the results of that for like a weekend and be like, what it, the reality and what is on Instagram is very different because I can feel like I am very well loved and popular on Instagram, but the reality is that I don't, I don't hang out with any of these people. Yeah. I think that's super interesting. I think all of these social media platforms sort of create this false sense of connection between people. Um, but at the same time, I mean, I will say I do enjoy the, the connections that I've made with other bloggers on Instagram and on Twitter. Um, but I've also had my own struggles with Instagram, especially, you know, with the quote unquote influencers. Um, and that's on me. Like I, that's not on them taking beautiful photos and living beautiful lives. That's on me. Not like you say, not being able to, you know, filter out that noise and filter out those feelings of enoughness. Um, cause it can really make you feel like garbage. Like, well, my, why doesn't my life look like that? And I went through a phase recently where I was like, oh, I'm going to start taking photos like influencers and it's going to include more of my house. We just bought a house this summer. So, you know, I'm going to include more of my house and let people into my life a little bit more. And then I started scrolling back through my feed recently, like in the last week. And I was like, I don't like any of these photos at all. Like I hate these. I hate what this looks like and I hate what this feels like. So I, you know, a little impulsively went through. Yeah. I I went through and I deleted all of the photos that I had taken all all of the, you know, more, all of the, all of the more staged photos. I just went through and got rid of all of them. Cause I was like, I don't like this. This feels gross. (laughs) Why did you wait? So did, did you decide it because you felt like you were trying to do it on purpose to show people or you just felt that it wasn't like perfect enough. No, 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 no. So it wasn't, it wasn't the, the latter was the former. So it was kind of like, uh, as I was scrolling back through my feed, like back to the beginning when I first started on Instagram, which when I first started and opened that Instagram account, it was a photography account that I cannot even remember the name of before I turned it into my blog account. Um, and so I was sharing mostly, you know, photos of hikes and environment, like different landscapes and stuff. And those are the kinds of photos that I love sharing. Like I just love focusing on nature and sort of quote unquote, more real things. Um, And so that's sort of what I've been trying to get back to now is sharing more of like the landscape around me, nature, those kinds of things. Cause I just don't, I just don't love sharing. I just don't love seeing my life in squares. I'm having like an epiphany as I'm talking. (laughs) No, this is super interesting. I also think like, you know, whatever your relationship with these, with um, social media, it's not black and white. Like there's so many benefits to being on Instagram and for me, like I followed, like being super geeky, like, you know, I followed some of my favorite journalists because I loved seeing the behind the scenes of how they do their their jobs. Like John Dickerson, who's on CBS this morning, is like a huge inspiration to me just because he's just an amazing journalist. And he's really active on social media and he actually advocates that social media is great to capture moments of everyday life. And and you know what, he's not wrong. And so it's um it doesn't have to be a black and white and black and white thing at all. I just wish that there was a competitor to Instagram so that, you know, we could all be on the competitor's Instagram version and not have all these targeted ads towards us. Yeah. I mean, at this point, I think I would pay for a social media experience that was ad free because then I would know that I wasn't the uh, 
tool. Like I wasn't, I wasn't the product if I was paying for it, which is, yeah, which is what we are now. <laughs> Honestly, like I pay for, um, I pay for medium, which is a subscription based model. And I'm completely fine with that. Like I would honestly spend like $4 a month or whatever, um, being the customer of one of these platforms and then have all my friends on it and share photos. I have absolutely no problem with that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, working in the field that I do, I know what, you know, what that marketing can look like because I create some of it and I know what the targeting options are and those kinds of things. And it's like, it can be pretty terrifying to think about. And so when I see ads now on my own personal feeds, I'm like, oh, I know how they got that feed to me because I looked for this thing or I liked this thing. And it kind of, once you start to think about the kinds of data that these companies have on you, it really grosses you out. It's not even like online too. It's like I walked into Best Buy the other day and then I texted I texted my partner and I was like, should I buy us a new TV? Like what? <laughs> like, 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 I'm, I am the most susceptible. <laughs> well, I think, I mean, marketing is very effective for those kinds of things. And it's like, oh yeah, maybe I should get a new 60 inch TV, even though the one that I have in my house is perfectly fine. <laughs> yeah. So I'm not, you know, I just, I think, I think some people are better at, uh, you know, handling themselves better than others. I know that I'm not, but you know. So I make no judgment on anyone who uses uh, Facebook or Instagram. That was just my decision. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think, I mean, a lot of people, especially with what Facebook has decided to do now and to make it more about, you know, the group content and your friends content, I think is is a very small way to move it in the correct direction. Um, and I think that a lot of people do get a lot of good stuff out of social media. So, yeah, if you're on Facebook, we're not we're not saying you're a terrible person. <laughs> no, not at all. Um. So as you said earlier, you're engaged. Congratulations. And so that means that you're, you know, planning a wedding and you're also saving for a down payment on a house. And so I'm wondering how you think, you know, your minimalism perspective will impact both of those big life events. Yeah. So (laughs) it's funny, like the amount of a down payment that we want to save up for and the cost of our wedding is going to, is easily surpasses the amount of debt that I had, which is very scary. Um, so in terms of the wedding, I will say this, if part of my, part of our, you know, minimalist values is that um, when it came to actually purchasing an engagement ring, which if anyone who is listening has to do it sometime in the future, it is quite a traumatic experience because <laughs> you, <laughs> if the person doesn't like the ring, then they're kind of stuck with it for a really long time. But, you know, in, in terms of that, we were looking into, you know, Jamie wanted a ring that was um as environmentally friendly as possible so really great alternatives was that you know i i I bought a ring that had recycled diamonds and that were conflict free and i actually had there's actually a a diamond in there that is lab grown um as well so not only does it sort of cut down on how much it costs but also it's knowing that they're not necessarily blood diamonds that you're you're using and that you're recycling so part of the circular economy which is really important but in terms of minimalism you know not only um, do we have to be a bit stricter with um, just where our money is going in the next little while, but also it was important to us along the lines of progressive minimalism that the businesses that we were going to be working with kind of aligned with our values. And so when we were looking at wedding venues and dealing with different potential vendors, we, we definitely have spoken to ones that are, you know, very, I guess I would say, obviously pro-queer, <laughs> because we are queer, um, but also our small businesses that 
are really into um, sustainable measures. Um, we are talking to a vendor who is a vegan plant-based chef who um, believes in sort of locally grown um, fruits and vegetables. Um, we are looking at a venue that um, also has a significant amount of sustainable practices in place. We also looked at a venue, uh, a winery, um, who the owner is a, uh, a, it's actually a mother-daughter duo, which is really interesting because uh, the wineries that are kind of near us are mostly um, led by, led or owned or managed by men. And also she is on the board of a violence against women sort of initiative in the county, which is really cool. So these are kind of things that we are looking into because I mean, no matter how um, financially responsible we want to be for our wedding, um, you know, it's still a lot of money that we're giving to these businesses. So we want to make sure that we're really sort of, we're, we're really trying to work with people that, you know, just have a really good ethical, uh, sustainable business practice. So that's kind of how we're incorporating into it. Um, and in terms of a down payment, I mean, we really are just making sure that we just do the usual things in terms of living a bit more frugally. We're making more meals at home. Um, we are not going on so many vacations. Um, we already don't have a car. I sold my car a couple of years ago, so we save a lot of money on that. And, you know, we're just trying to put things into perspective and have a long-term view of these things as well. So um, that's kind of just how our internal mindset and approaches and also how we're trying to spend our money in terms of uh, these events. I love that. That's so awesome. Um, especially when you're talking about, you know, trying to work with businesses that, you know, reflect your own values. I think that's so cool because it can be hard, like even if, even as a minimalist in your, you know, in your day-to-day life, it's easier to see what that looks like in terms of like, you know, bringing your lunch to work or only buying secondhand clothing or, um, you know, growing some of your own food. But then when you start to think about these bigger life events, like, how does that work? Can we actually do that? And I don't know that everyone knows that they can or even thinks about it as as an option. So I think that's really cool that that's something that you're trying to prioritize, especially when you're, I mean, it is a massive financial outlay. So I think, you know, putting your money into businesses that you believe in and that you support is just, I mean, icing on the top of the cake. Yeah. And I think that, you know, whatever, wherever you fall on the political spectrum, if you believe that you know, we should address climate change and all that sort of things using a market-based approach. Well, I mean, the market is really just a combination of things that people are willing to pay for and the culture of that changes. So if more people are more inclined to reward companies that have these sort of practices, then I think that's great. And I think that that's the market showing itself that, you know, these are what, uh, people are willing to pay for. So I think that it's important to to help local businesses, but specifically local businesses who align with your values. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think that's awesome. Um, and it is obviously more work to find those companies, but I think it's absolutely worth it. Um, and I think that that's, you know, where minimalism helps you to help you be more intentional with the the purchases that you're making, especially when it comes to those bigger, you know, celebratory life events. Because like, I mean, I can't imagine 
if I ever got, if we, if my partner and I ever got married, which there are no plans, mom, if you're listening. So just cool your jets. Um, <laughs> I can't imagine, you know, getting married at a venue that, you know, only used disposable cutlery or didn't, you know, uh, source produce from local farmers. Like I just can't imagine having a wedding at a place like that. So it's just, it's, it's cool to see someone actually trying to make that happen. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, um, I think that there's more and more of these businesses coming up. And what's really great about it is that the venue that we saw, um, one of the venues that we saw, they had a preferred vendors list. And most of them on there were ones that already had sustainable business practices because they were just all friends and knew each other, worked with each other before. So um, it's definitely it's definitely easier when, you know, one business knows other other businesses. So um it wasn't as much work as we had thought and we're still sourcing, you know, we still have other um, vendors to contact, but, um, but yeah, no, it's, it's great and definitely worthwhile. In terms of, you know, cause I think we all live in our own little bubbles to a certain extent, even if we are connected online. And I think you have a, a wider sphere of uh, knowledge than most people in the minimalism space, which is awesome. Um, I'm just wondering whose content you're loving right now that you would, you know, shout from the rooftops to share with us. Does it have to be minimalism related? Nope, it can be just, anything you okay. want. Sweet. So the, the one person that I'm loving so far, and honestly, most of the research that I've learned has come from him, is a anthropologist and professor uh, named Jason Hickel. And his last name is H-I-C-K-E-L. And he works at London School of Economics and another university in London. And he is basically where I learned about degrowth economics, which is basically a plan to sort of move away from, you know, the ever limitless GDP number and to sort of use alternative measures uh, to indicate the quality of life of others. And so I have really... Um, I've been reading on my on my desk right now, if you could see my desk, a bunch of his research articles are, are stacked up on there. And um, he has a blog, it's jasonhickel.org. And he also has a great book called The Divide, which is about um, the gap between global north and global south. And so I really recommend that. He has a really fascinating uh, article about is a good life possible uh, within planetary boundaries. And he goes through basically all the relevant literature about it um, and whether or not it's feasible or not. And it seems that it can be feasible, which is a very positive, um, which is very positive for us. So, uh, so yeah, so I would say Jason Hickel, um, is, is one, is one person that I'm loving so far. And he also has a really awesome interview with Russell Brand. (laughs) If people want to watch it on YouTube. Um, so, so yeah, I would say Jason Hickel is one of them. That's awesome. Um, I also have a degree in anthropology. So anytime anyone talks about anthropologists, I'm, I'm on board. I'm there. <laughs> yeah. And he also writes for The Guardian. So it's not as, you know, uh, academic all the time. So he has, you know, and um, if I may, you know, some of the solutions that he proposes are, you know, very practical in my mind. So things that we're looking at is, you know, legislating things like extended warranties on products. So washing machines and refrigerators last for 30 years instead of 10, uh, banning planned obsolescence. So, you know, manufacturers don't create products that are designed to fail. Like France in 2015 already introduced a law that made it mandatory for manufacturers to say how long their appliances will last for. And under that law, Apple was investigated by France when Apple came out in 2017, admitted that they were slowing older iPhone models down. 
Um, you know, there's other things that we can do, like a right to repair legislation so that we can fix our own smartphones and appliances. So like, you know how if our iPhone, like our screen breaks, we have to go into an Apple store to fix it. Well, you know, with a right to repair legislation, it would make it transparent so that we can just order our own screen and, um, you know, order the diagnostics and everything that we need and the manuals to do it ourselves so that it would be a lot cheaper. Um, and another thing that he proposes is, you know, perhaps banning food in landfills, which is what South Korea already does. So South Korea um, in 2005 made it illegal to um, not separate your food waste from the rest of your garbage. And then basically what they do starting from 2013 is that whenever South Koreans have food waste, they have to actually measure it. And then they get a bill at the end of the month, depending on the household of how much waste that you have. And that has greatly reduced how much food waste that, uh, that South Korea has. So there are a lot of cool things that he is suggesting that's backed by um, research from academics that are much smarter than me. And so I think it's worth having a look at. I'm going to go read all of that later because that sounds awesome. <laughs> yeah. And it's crazy because like so many other countries are doing all this stuff and it's just mind blowing that, you know, us in Canada, just we're, we're not even there yet. You know, we're already, you know, we're, we're, we're fighting a carbon tax through the legal system. Like we don't even want a carbon tax yet. There's so many other countries that are doing so much more progressive things that are actually lowering the amount of, lowering their footprint so yeah the, i mean the food waste conversation is a really interesting one um and one that is very near to my heart here where i live in thunder bay because we can't recycle nearly anything here so we we really? can only recycle number one and two plastics and nothing else wait but do you compost is there a compost thing so there's no composting program in thunder bay but you can obviously do your own composting uh if you you know if you want it want to in your own uh property but there's oh, no like so program for it yeah because we live in the, that's yeah, we live in the north where there's tons of empty space so, so we don't need to recycle anything or at least that's apparently what the thought is but yeah it, it blows my mind because when you go into the grocery store now I have become much more aware of what I'm buying that is packaged because if it's something that's in number three or up plastics I'm not buying it anymore because I know it just has to go in the garbage and so it's it's really changed the way that we consume things in our household that's so interesting I do that too or Jamie forces me to so um, we specifically go to places where like vegetables aren't in packaging so we can just bring our own like reusable bag and, and just weigh it that way but in I'm just nerding out about this a little bit because this is for my upcoming article for deliberate discourse but in France in 2016 and then Italy also followed suit is that they became the first country in the world to ban supermarkets from throwing away uh, unsold food or destroying unsold food and they forced them to donate it to charities or food banks to the point where if a supermarket was over a certain size, they had to sign contracts with charities or they would face a penalty. And it was this growing concern that people were foraging in their bins, like transient people, families, students, unemployed people. And then supermarkets were intentionally bleaching the food or deliberately locking it so that they couldn't have access to it. And so France banned that. And then, yeah, so then a couple months later, Italy also did the same thing as well. But uh, it's really cool in South Korea because what you basically do is that you have food waste in bags that you get from the city and you track your food waste with 
something called a radio frequency ID card. So you tap the card and you register the household and then you dump the food waste into a bin and then it logs how much waste you'll be charged for. And at the end of the month, depending on how much food is wasted, you get a bill. And so before this policy, Seoul, which is I think the largest city in South Korea, they used to spend $600,000 a day on food waste disposal. And now that money is saved through recycling. And um, what happens is that when they recycle the food waste, they actually have a machine they process it where it dries up the food waste and then it turns into animal feed in less than three hours. And then part of the uh, byproduct of this uh, process is the biogas and the biogas gets transformed to energy. And then it basically meets almost all of the electricity needs of the plants themselves. So the plants are like self-sustaining on the actual food waste, uh, the byproducts of the food waste that they are processing. I am nerding out about this because that sounds amazing. <laughs> yeah, Seoul's food waste has decreased 10% by more than 300 tons per day as a result of this policy. And they're anticipating that it's going to be reduced by 30% in the next four years as a result of this. And then they're also reporting that out of a thousand households, about 10 to 15% do not produce food waste at all since it was implemented. So it actually works. But also this also makes sense on like, because we know that middle and uh, upper middle income households uh, have more waste than lower income households. I mean, think of all the money that you could be doing with that revenue. I mean, you could just redistribute it to help lower income households. So there's a, there's a lot of good ways that we can do it with what we already have. Um, we just need to be a bit more creative about it. So anyways, I'm just nerding about this now because I was researching it, but <laughs> it's interesting to see what other countries have already done because it's like, oh, it's possible and it's already, you know, working mm -hmm. so well. Yeah. Get your act together, Canada. <laughs> Figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> Get out of here, Ford. Yeah, exactly. Oh, my gosh. Uh, on that note, um, <laughs> um, if anyone wanted to, you know, uh, connect with you online or, you know, uh, read some more of your stuff, where can they find you on the Internet? So you can uh, I'm on Twitter. So my handle is Jennifer T. Chan. Um, Chan is C-H-A-N. And then my newsletter is on a platform called Substack, which is a relatively new platform, um, but it's amazing. And you can find my weekly newsletter called Deliberate Discourse there. It's at jennifertaylorchan.substack.com. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for talking to me today, Jen. I think we, I think we covered it all. I don't think we, you know, we left no stone <laughs> unturned. <laughs> it was great. Thank you so much for having me. Isn't Jen like the coolest person you've ever heard? We spoke for almost another hour after we stopped recording, and it was so nice to connect with someone who has the same views on the environment and the economy as I do. Oh, and one small correction. After we recorded this episode, Jen changed the URL of her newsletter to deliberatediscourse.substack.com. So if you want to connect with her, and you absolutely should, you can find her there. What has stuck with me since my interview with Jen is just how important our consumption is to the health of our planet and how environmental sustainability and preservation really should be at the forefront of why we're deciding to pursue a more intentional minimalist life. It's great that minimalism has significant personal benefits, but those benefits wouldn't mean anything if the external benefits it can create for the environment and the redistribution of wealth don't come to fruition. I know that a lot of what we discussed can feel pretty academic and high level, but I urge everyone to do your own research and familiarize yourself with your local laws and opportunities surrounding environmental regulation. I know we covered a lot of ground, but I'd love to know what you thought of this week's episode. Feel free to email me at tinyambitionsblog at gmail.com or leave Tiny Bites a review on iTunes. It really does mean the world to me. Until next time, I hope you enjoyed this episode of Tiny Bites.